Aloha, I'm Katherine Knorr and welcome to my show, Much More on Medicine. Today we have Natalie Pettit, a workers' comp attorney in Hawaii. She practices workers' comp and she has so much to tell us about uh, issues regarding COVID-19 law and workers' comp. But we're also going to be talking about general issues that you may encounter with COVID-19 because we believe that we are going to have a lot of legal issues in the future. And I'm sure that Natalie and I, we're, we're both dealing with them now with clients. So um, Natalie, I'd like to welcome you. Thank you. It's so great to be here. All right. So tell us a little bit about your background um, uh, as an attorney. Sure. Um, I practice primarily in the area of workers' compensation. I have done so for over a decade. I do have a background in labor and employment law as well. Um, prior to private practice, I was in the JAG Corps in the United States Army. I deployed to Iraq in 2003. Um, and that kind of lets you know how old I am. So um, a pretty, pretty diverse background. All right, fantastic. So in work comp, do you represent employers or employees? I represent employers, um, but in my practice, it's always very, very important to me to do the right thing by both sides. And I really strive to come to a fair uh, result for both employers and employees as well. But I do represent the employers. Okay. And I'm certainly going to be weighing in on this conversation quite a bit because we, we're both going to be discussing legal issues that we see in the practice of law. And I'm an attorney and I practice insurance, defense, litigation, sports, and esports law. And I actually have been handling some COVID-19 legal issues lately. And I know both of us have been diving into some seminars related to COVID-19 to kind of learn more and to hear what other people are doing. Um, and I kind of feel the same way that you do, Natalie, in that even though I represent the insurance carriers generally or their insureds, I do want to be fair. And in, insurance companies basically have to pay what they owe and deny what they don't know because when they deny they're actually doing that in favor of other policyholders. that's an important aspect of insurance so, so you know that's kind of that fairness issue so we have a lot to cover today so what i'll ask you first natalie is we'll first start with work comp and then we'll go on to other areas but what i'm really curious about is um is COVID-19 something that would be covered under work comp? The answer is maybe. So we're really um, diving into <laughs> uncharted territory. Uh, these are very new issues with respect to diseases that are perhaps contracted in the workplace. Um, if you are a medical person, you work in a hospital or a nursing care home, if you're in the medical field, um, basically it's going to be presumed that that disease was caught in the workplace. However, if you're not working in a medical facility, um, usually you there has to be some sort of 
uh, connection to work. I mean, it's entirely possible that people could contract COVID, um, you know, off the street or from a family member. And since there's such a long incubation period, two week period of time, it's really difficult to tell where it was contracted. Now in Hawaii, we do have a, a presumption of compensability built into the law. But with this type of situation, um, it's really incumbent upon employers to do a very thorough investigation. They may want to deny a claim pending investigation. And if you're an injured worker, don't be surprised if this happens. It doesn't mean uh, that your claim is going to be denied. It just means that they need a little additional time to investigate to make sure that it was in fact contracted at work, for example, and, and not from a family member. Natalie, I was watching um, the chief of police on TV uh, recently, and she said she made a comment. And you know, I hope I'm I'm uh, passing this on correctly. And you know, she'll probably be letting us know if if I'm not. But she said something that when the police officers, if they contract COVID nineteen, there would be a presumption that it was caused by work. Did you hear that statement that she made? I actually did not. Um, and of course, again, these are all new issues. So if you're deemed to be an essential worker, uh, you know, historically, when when a healthcare worker contracts a disease in the workplace, generally, it's automatically compensable. Um, but for other employees, no. But, you know, it's questionable in this situation. We've never been in these waters before. If you're deemed an essential worker, uh, is it automatically compensable like it is for healthcare workers? And the answer to that is we just don't know. Okay, so we know that uh, we, we've seen all these situations where employees have had to uh, quarantine for 14 days and, um, and have been off work for that amount of time. And, you know, we, I know everyone's been consuming a lot of news regarding this. And, and lately today, we found out that Maui Memorial Medical Center has 15 employees that have uh, apparently contracted COVID-19. And so can you address how it's determined how long the employee would be off and when they would return to work? Sure. So the CDC guidelines um, provide um, information and some guidance on how employers can help address this type of situation. Really, they defer very heavily to the medical doctor that's treating the, um, the patient, the employee. Uh, if generally you, you would wait the two week period of time uh, to determine whether or not they are displaying symptoms of COVID-19 once they've been exposed to it. Um, but they, they can be released to return to work sooner by a medical doctor. So even if you have a presumed case of COVID, meaning they're displaying symptoms, but they weren't able to get a test, um, or if there's an actual diagnosis of COVID, meaning they got the test and they did test positive, you don't necessarily have to wait the full two week period of time. Some people, their recovery time is quicker and they can be released to return to work sooner. What employers are doing, starting to do nationwide, is once you have, uh, if you're looking to return to work, once you have two uh, negative COVID tests, 
then you can return to work. They say that with one negative COVID test, there it can be a, a false um, test, meaning that there's still a 30% chance the person still has COVID. Um, when there are two tests administered, that reduces down to 9%. And if three COVID tests are administered, that reduces the chance down to 3%. So they're saying uh, when employers are looking to bring employees back to work, that it's a good idea to have them take those two tests in order to make sure that they are not positive when they re-enter the workplace. Okay, I um, heard a situation from a friend of mine that um, stated that he, that there was an employee at his office who didn't like to be around anyone using hand sanitizer. And so everyone was complaining about the fact that this employee um, was in their space and they couldn't use hand sanitizer. Finally, they ultimately moved her to another area um, so that she could like be away from their use of hand sanitizer, but everyone in the office ended up getting sick. Have you had any situations like that? I haven't seen those types of situations. It doesn't surprise me. We see all sorts of, of cases roll in. I will say, um, you know, that, that things are, are being handled on a case-by-case -case basis now, and you really have to look at all the facts. You want to make sure that you're protecting your employees, uh, but at the same time, you can't inconvenience uh, everyone else, the entire office, for example. Um, so you have to find workarounds. You have to find reasonable accommodations and, and see what can be done if, a, if you can find a happy medium to accommodate everybody. Okay, so now I'd like to talk about business interruption clauses. And there, are, I know that there are a lot of businesses out there and we've seen some news about this. They are trying to get coverage under their business policies for business interruption. And, um, you know, I, I would just say that when we address this, we ask people to read their policies carefully because there are exclusions for particular things and they don't necessarily mention or they, they essentially exclude pandemics and viruses. However, there's going to be legal issues that arise out of those. Do you have any thoughts on business exclusion policies? I, my understanding is that you, you're generally correct. I mean, I think most of those business interruption policies don't anticipate a, a worldwide pandemic. Um, and those are things that are excluded. They're looking more for types of things like floods or, you know, different events that, that might occur that would disrupt the business other than disease. Uh, I will say, though, that I would never discourage anyone, and I, I don't think that you are, I'm just throwing this out there, I would never discourage anyone from filing a claim. I think that it is important um, to get the claim on file and then work at determining whether it's something that you can recover for after the fact. And it's my understanding that five states have already introduced legislation to uh, expand the coverage under those policies. And I don't know if Hawaii will do that, but it's a concern to small insurance carriers who have a potential of going out of business if they have too many claims. And there's some um, 
issues regarding possible reinsurers coming in in here because it is a national emergency. So, or actually, it's really a world emergency, and so it's going to impact the insurance industry significantly. But before we move on to other interesting topics, we will be taking a break. So um, uh, we'll return shortly. It, uh, this is much more on medicine. I'm speaking with Natalie Pettit about COVID-19 legal issues. Hi, I'm Rusty Kamori, host of Beyond the Lines on Think Tech Hawaii. I was the head coach for the Punahou Boys varsity tennis team for 22 years, and we were fortunate to win 22 consecutive state championships. My show is based on my book, also titled Beyond the Lines, and it's about leadership, creating a superior culture of excellence and finding greatness. I feature a wide range of amazing guests who share valuable insights about how going beyond the lines leads to success in everything you do in life. I'm looking forward to you joining me every Monday at 11 a.m. Aloha. We're back. We're live. This is Catherine Knorr with much more on medicine. I'm talking with Natalie Pettit regarding COVID-19 legal issues. And uh, we're going to talk about supply chain issues. I'm sure that many of you have found challenges in getting particular goods when you go to the grocery store. Uh, there's actually a Facebook page devoted to helping people locate hard to find items like toilet paper. Um, there are many companies have questions about whether the stay at home order applies to certain aspects of their business, whether they can operate their factory uh, with employees on a, on a assembly line where they can't keep them at six feet apart. So that's an issue. And, and many um, companies are seeking uh, legal advice to help address that issue and whether uh, they can continue their business. Uh, Natalie, do you have any thoughts on that? No, it's a very, well, I, I do have some thoughts, but no answers, unfortunately. Um, it's a very, very <laughs> interesting issue uh, because you have so many people that are now working from home, as you indicated, instead of the regular workplace. And so the tight, we're consuming more goods at home where previously we relied on our workplace to provide those. For example, with, you know, with toilet paper, um, every, everyone's complaining about the toilet paper being out, out in the store, but a lot of times when you're working, you're using your employer's toilet paper for much of the day. So your um, need has increased. And I think that that's something people are failing to recognize. Also, the supply chain is different for what you buy, for example, in the grocery store, 
um, or another store that you would shop at versus the type of goods an employer buys. It's a, a different type of good. It's a different um, supply chain, and that's causing some hiccups in, in the system. Well, With respect to it, I Go ahead, Natalie. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, with respect to distancing in the workplace, staying six feet apart from your coworkers when you're trying to get the goods out is an impossibility. Um, and there are some concessions that I, I think are going to need to be made. Sure, absolutely. And I see different businesses where they have a difficult time, keep uh, a difficult situation where like bank tellers, sometimes they're not set up to be six feet apart. Um, and that can cause problems. But in the supply chain situation, my concern is that um, there might be a particular small part that would not be uh, um, a necessity. And so it would be excluded. Like, for example, in packaging, there might be a particular cap on a bottle or something that may, you know, may mean there's people staying at home complying with the order, but they are not uh, in the workforce uh, developing that product that is needed to produce this particular element. And there could be shortages that way. That's a concern I have. And I think that that's where these um, determinations, these legal determinations as to whether these particular portions of the supply chain can continue to operate or whether they are they fall within the provisions of a stay-at-home order, whether it be federal or state or local. Um, let's move on to uh, negligence. Um, we are probably going to see a lot of litigation arising out of um, COVID-19. And one of the things that is interesting to me is this idea that someone could file a lawsuit against a business and claim that they contracted um, COVID-19 from that business, or they could file that lawsuit against an individual. And I think that those issues make it so that um, uh, businesses decide not to operate, or they decide, or a particular um, activity is not allowed anymore, like a condo complex closes a swimming pool or a tennis court because of fear of that. And so um, what, have your, what have you seen in this regard? I think you're right. I think it is going to generate a lot of litigation. Unfortunately, you know, it's really sad. People are, are really doing their best um, to get through really challenging times. And um, inevitably, some people are, are going to get sick. Um, We've already seen some people die from from COVID-19. Uh, again, I mentioned this in early on uh, when we started speaking. There's such a, a long incubation period. It almost becomes impossible to identify where they contracted the disease. So I do think that businesses will have a good defense in this regard. But the cost of litigation in and of itself, even if they prevail, is is huge. It's, it's a... a a burden a lot of small employers can't um, overcome, uh, and hopefully, um, you know, I hopefully they have insurance that is able to help them in this regard. 
And this is where risk management needs to come in. I think that businesses have to make very strategic decisions in order to, um, you know, prevent possible COVID-19 um, problems. And I, you know, I saw it in my building um, where they actually put in a COVID-19 regional testing center on floor on the first floor. And that was very concerning to me. And um, ultimately, they, after about two weeks, they moved it out of the first floor and they moved it down the street to a, a freestanding building. I think they, they probably got enough complaints from other uh, tenants of the building about having it there and the risk to other people using it. Another thing that I thought was interesting is that the parking lot was actually a waiting area. And I wouldn't go in the parking lot anymore because I thought that is a very dangerous place to be. You're around people that actually are there uh, coughing and they want to be tested. So I think as individuals, we not only have to, you know, ultimately um, be concerned about who's at fault, but I think we have to actually make some um, smart decisions for ourselves to avoid these situations and actually follow orders, follow the stay at home order so you don't get sick and you don't have to blame it on someone. That's my thought. Um, but now let's move on to, um, to force majeure clauses and contracts. Um, I'm dealing with this with clients right now in that um, March and April are, and June, and actually March, April, May, and June are very popular times to have events which attract many people. And so with everything that's gone on, especially in Hawaii, with we have um, quarantine restrictions, stay-at-home orders on different levels, and it impedes the ability to go forward with events. Not only it scares people in terms of registering for events and making plane reservations, but also the ability to actually have the event. And these clauses in contracts actually can um, excuse the parties from performance. And one of the, one of the um, uh, requirements is, to, or potential requirements is to determine that the uh, going forward with the contract is an impossibility, or there could be acts of God exclusions or government order exclusions. Um, Natalie, do you have any thoughts on uh, force majeure uh, clauses? Uh, just making sure that they're included in, in any contracts that you have, either ones that you're trying to enforce or, or get out of, um, and future contracts that you may in enter into as well. We don't know how long the situation is going to last, um, and it, it may flare up again. So you want to make sure that you're protected. What I'm hearing a lot is that is not a term, a contract term that is frequently used. It's very unusual, very rare. And some contracts they're finding have been drafted without that provision in it, which is a huge mistake. But you want to make sure that you're reading the, the contract very, very carefully um, in order to be able to take advantage of that provision. 
Natalie, you have a very good point. Um, some people think that the force majeure contract and a contract uh, clause in a contract is just not that important, that it wouldn't likely occur. But people have to, when they enter into a contract, they actually have to read the contract carefully and think about what could possibly happen. Now, this is kind of a once in a lifetime situation. I never thought about pandemics before. And I admit that I never watched the, sh the movie Contagion. So I had very little information about this. And yesterday I was talking to Jay Fidel on his show about, um, about uh, um, like when you buy into the seriousness of this situation. And I was a late adopter because I thought that we would not have the problems that we ultimately did. So I think that also weighs into how people act. Natalie, did you, at what point did you understand the seriousness of this situation? I have to laugh. I am so type A personality. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know as an attorney, maybe I just automatically have this catastrophic thinking. I want to be prepared for any event or any scenario. So um, I, I feel as though I was prepared. I, I, I was hoping it wouldn't be as bad as it was, but um, I can tell you we have enough toilet paper to last. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad you're prepared, but you can all, we also can uh, be assured that we're prepared for uh, hurricane season. But this, uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you, Natalie, and thank you very much for appearing today. Uh, this is much more on medicine on the Think Tech live streaming series. And please um, enjoy future shows. I'll be talking to uh, family counselor Walter David Disney in two weeks on Wednesday at three o'clock. And uh, we'll be talking about uh, 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 various issues in dealing with the emotional challenges of stay-at-home orders. And I uh, thank uh, our producer and our um, uh, other, uh, and Eric, who works uh, tirelessly to put this show on. Um, we'll see you next time. Aloha.